It's the 25th of October. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This week, TNF inhibitors in pain. It doesn't always go away. Psoriatic arthritis patients in liver disease is probably more common than you think. And lastly, a bevy of regulatory decisions by the FDA and EMA. More important, how many is a bevy? Well, let's count them up at the end and see. First report from the FDA, good news. They've, it's not even all the way through the year, and they set a record on generic approvals this year. In 2018, they had 971 approvals. In 17, 937 approvals. This year, we're, I guess, what, 80% through the year, and we already have 1,700, no, 1,171 new generic drugs approved by the FDA. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the head of Health and Human Services, uh, Alex Azar, has praised the FDA for basically improving the lives of Americans by making drugs more affordable and more available by this record number of generic approvals. Looming in the background is a prescription drug bill and pricing issues. It's going to be a big issue in the elections here in in the U.S. This might be the only good news on drug and cost of drugs that we'll see in the next 12 months. Psoriatic arthritis patients and diet. Uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I have this sneaky suspicion that diet can actually help psoriatic arthritis patients, maybe even spondylitis patients. I'm not so sure about fibromyalgia, OA, and, and RA. My experience has been quite negative, but our clinic experience has been quite positive for patients taking on a paleo diet or a gluten-free low-carb diet. Well, an observational study of 211 psoriatic arthritis patients look at their adherence to a Mediterranean diet. That's, again, pretty much a paleo diet or uh, the same as a gluten-free, low-carb, no-carb diet. Um, In the psoriatic arthritis patients, a number of them were obese. A quarter of them had the metabolic syndrome. When they totaled up their adherence to a Mediterranean diet, uh, two-thirds were moderately uh, adherent to the diet. More importantly, they looked at correlations between dietary adherence and disease activity measures, the DAPSA and the HACS score. And they showed an inverse correlation between disease activity measures and diet adherence. So high diet adherence, low DAPSA scores, low HACS scores. Mike, could this be something you recommend to your patients who have psoriatic arthritis? Would you ever use the word Mike could? Well, move to Texas and you might. Could. Toronto has been studying psoriatic arthritis for a long time. Led by Daphne Gladman, they have a psoriatic arthritis clinic. Over 1,000 patients followed for a long period of time. They found that 343 patients had liver test abnormalities, a prevalence rate of 32%. An incidence rate of 39 per 1,000 patient years makes it sound less, but it is quite prevalent. Turns out that liver test abnormalities are more likely in patients who have, um, as you would imagine, fatty liver, um, and um, patients who were followed up over a longer period of time. Corona has looked at an issue that we talked about last week, and the issue being uh, what happens to people who have active disease and how often are drugs changed in such patients. In their registry, a study of 409 biologic-naive individuals followed every six months. Uh, more than half of them had moderate to high disease activity based on standard measures at baseline, Yet when they followed them prospectively, only 
30% had a change in their DMAR therapy despite having high disease activity, moderate disease activity. Again, what are you waiting for? Turns out that DMAR changes in this study, last study we told you about who doesn't have changes. It's the elderly, it's those who have comorbidities. Here, the ones who did have DMAR changes were more likely to be young, have a shorter disease duration, have high disease activity and high pain scores uh, and high fatigue uh, numbers as well. So a very interesting study was published. I think this is from Doximity. Um, what kind of shoes do doctors prefer? We know the saying goes, you know, give a girl the right shoes and she'll conquer the world. Maybe the corollary to that is a man in bad shoes will ruin a relationship. But what do doctors do? Well, in this study of 225 patients, turns out the number one choice of, of shoes by physicians, men and women, was 30% who went with casual or loafer type shoes. Only 25% went with dress shoes. 20% of you are obviously moving fast because you're wearing sneakers. And then there's a special breed of doctor, 11%, who are wearing those clogs and crocs, and I doubt that all of them are in the OR. Turns out that 83% of you said the most important factor was comfort, and popular brands that were chosen by doctors were Clark's, Dansko, D-A-N-S-K-O, never heard of them, Skechers, Echo, Merrill, Rockport, and Cole Hans. Looks like a lot of leather, a lot of laces on one end, a lot of sneaker and comfort and clogs on the other end, a bimodal distribution. Thankfully, nobody's wearing Velcro shoes. Hopefully, if you are, you're in radiology and soon to retire. But, you know, shoes are a big issue. I think that uh, can you look at the shoes and say, I can judge my doctor by his shoes. The shoes maketh the doctor. If the quality of the shoe, I think there might actually be a correlation here. The cost or quality of the shoe is probably related to the length of the differential diagnosis he or she can come up with. On the other hand, if you're wearing a sneaker or clogs or Crocs, I don't think differential diagnosis is important to you. Hmm. Stick with the leathers and lace-ups is my, my advice. But then again, don't take my advice. You know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, I was yelling at residents for not wearing a tie. I don't wear a tie to clinic anymore. I think there's good medical reasons for it. I've gotten old and cranky and lazy. No, I'm not wearing clogs to clinic. There's an interesting study out about the growth of cancers in RA patients, especially cancers that would be amenable to treatment with these newer immune checkpoint inhibitors. As we know, these agents are associated with a high or substantially low rate of immune-related adverse events, that they're actually a little more common in patients who actually have an autoimmune disease like RA, PSA, etc. And it turns out that our patients are having more tumors amenable to such therapy, suggesting that when a study was started, only 0% of our tumors would have been amenable to such therapy. Now it's 7% of the tumors affecting rheumatoids, and that's between 2014 and 2018. All this to say that you probably should be familiar with the autoimmune events surrounding immune checkpoint inhibitors because be, more patients will be going on these drugs that are highly effective, big game changers in diseases like um, uh, uh, melanoma. So uh, you should be aware of these conditions and, and that what can be caused by those particular 
um, anti-cancer therapies. A lot of regulatory decisions, the EMA, and specifically the Committee on uh, Medicinal Products for Human Use, the CMHP, I think it's called, they've recommended upadacitinib or Rinvoke for marketing in the, United States, in, in, in the EU that's not yet approved, but has been recommended for approval. They have actually also announced uh, a positive opinion regarding the use of Romosuzumab, the anti-sclerostin drug, in the treatment of severe osteoporosis with the proviso that it be in postmenopausal women who are at high risk for fracture and who have no prior history of MI or CVA. As you know, the evaluation of that drug was held up by considerations of the data that looked at a higher rate of cardiovascular events, MACE events, in patients who were taking Romosuzumab. The FDA has just approved ustekinumab for ulcerative colitis. Uh, as you know, it's been approved previously for Crohn's disease. Uh, it's out there for many of our indications as well. It's based on a UNIFI trial where sub-Q ustekinumab was shown to cause remission in about 40% of individuals, where it was only 24% in those on placebo, suggesting its efficacy and now its availability. And then also the FDA this week came up with a new guidance document recommending that patients who are undergoing breast implantation be warned, boxed warning that is, about the hazards of breast implants and their association with a lot of different things, uh, including uh, infections, hardening, revision rates, whatnot. Not so much about the autoimmune phenomenon. Again, that's all been talked about, but really not a part of the mix um, there's, a, there's a small chance of a strange lymphoma-like condition that occurs. And in these recommendations, besides the box warning uh, and a checklist of warning things and, uh, that patients need to know about, is the recommendation that patients have imaging either by MRI or ultrasound if they develop hardening or period, periodically throughout their course. So that's kind of interesting that the FDA has gone this far. It's a guidance document. They're asking for opinions. It's not a final document but it will be in the near future. There's a nice study that looked at almost 2,000 patients with rheumatoid arthritis who were initiating a TNF inhibitor. And it turns out that when they looked at those patients, um, how many of them were on opioids for the management of their pain? It turns out that it was almost 40% almost 40, 40 of patients. Well, you would think getting a TNF inhibitor would lead to great efficacy, control of disease, less need for opioids. And it turns out that that was partly true. So a decrease in opioid use on, in patients on TNF inhibitors dropped from 54 to 51%, while not so much. Also, the number of patients who required, you know, a, a high dose to give you the uh, equivalent of greater than 50 milligrams of a morphine equivalent, that's basically high dose um, uh, narcotic therapy, dropped from 12.6 to 10.6 following TNF inhibitor use. Says that even though TNF inhibitors we know are very, very effective, they may not be very effective in managing pain. This was seen in a lot of the JAK inhibitor trials where the JAKs were making claims that they're much better at pain control compared to their comparator drug, which was usually a TNF inhibitor. So there's more to treating pain in RA than just effective biologic therapy. Probably need to rethink that. There's probably a lot of secondary fibromyalgia going on here. There's obviously structural disease and mechanical problems that contribute to this, but it may be um, an unrecognized, unmet need in the care of our RA patients. 
We'll end with the reminder that Zantac is being recalled by Sanofi, who's the, one of the later primary manufacturers of Zantac, ranitidine. You know, this has been in the news for quite some time now, but now it seems like everybody's pulling the drug off the shelves and it's going to go grow scarce, largely because of the association with not NMDA, it's NDMA, which is an incipient that's found in this drug. And a lot of other drugs have been pulled from the market recently. It has been listed as a weak carcinogen. Uh, it's been recommended by the FDA. These companies study it. In the meantime, pull the drug. So you should remind your patients, stop that, use a PPI. You know, Tagamet actually is also in short supply, and that is something you'll have to deal with. Uh, make sure you follow us at the ACR. I heard good news this week that at the ACR, 49.1% of all presentations will be by women. So they'll be out in force, um, as will the men. And maybe it'll be a battle of the sexes for who does best at the ACR. That's it. Check out the citations and more on the website, roomnow.com. Go forth, do good, earn their trust, change the world. We'll see you next week.